Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Well, good morning. Happy uh, unofficial first weekend of summer, right? (laughs) That's Memorial Day. And I know this warmer, drier weather we've been having this last week has definitely been a blessing for our farmers. It's so good to see so many tractors out in the field finally getting uh, the ground worked over, the seed put in, and even seeing some of that seed now sprout as you're driving down the road. We we trust now that the Lord will provide rain in its season and uh, that those seeds will continue to sprout and grow. As I, as I mentioned, Memorial Day is the, right, the unofficial start of summer. Grill outs, weekends at the lake, no more school for many of our students, mosquitoes eating you alive, uh, that sort of thing, right? Memorial Day is great. Everybody loves the extra day off, but as has, we've talked about a little bit this morning, uh, don't forget the, the history and the reason for the holiday. Memorial Day began in 1866, which was the year following the Civil War. Originally, Memorial Day was called Decoration Day, as Americans in various towns and cities started um, holding these springtime tributes to the fallen soldiers that were buried in the cemeteries in their cities, and they would go and decorate the graves of the fallen soldiers by putting flowers on their graves. And in the 1970s, the federal government codified Memorial Day as it had become Uh, known by then as the final Monday in May, thus creating the three-day weekend that we know and love now. And Memorial Day isn't a a religious holiday that doesn't carry the same weight as Christmas or Easter or, for that matter, uh, Ash Wednesday or Pentecost would, but it is good as a nation to pause, right, to reflect and to remember those who have sacrificed for our nation and for the freedoms that we enjoy. And so in the busyness of this weekend, whether you're at the lake or having a grill out or whatever you're doing this weekend, I'd encourage you to do that tomorrow, to pause and to reflect and to remember. During Lent and during the 40 days uh, leading up to Easter, we, we focused on this concept at Maranatha of who needs repentance, right? And we looked at examples from the Old Testament of, of godly kings, of, of wayward prophets, of a nation in exile. And we also looked at examples from the New Testament, sinful women and, and proud Pharisees, a, a prodigal son and his arrogant brother, and criminals who were crucified next to Jesus. We also looked at the one who needed no repentance. And after Easter, we took a few weeks off of the theme of repentance for, I think we had New Members Sunday, a couple of Confirmation Sundays in there, Senior Recognition Sunday, uh, even though those folks in those groups still need repentance. We just paused for a little bit. Uh, last week, Pastor Lloyd led us through Second Peter chapter 3, and we looked at those who were skeptical of the return of Christ and of their need to repent. And with it being Memorial Day weekend and and thinking of this theme of repentance, I was led back to the Old Testament. And I was thinking of a nation that needed to repent because they had turned their backs on the Lord. We're going to place this text in in its context in a little bit. But if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 
Chronicles. I'm not going to say 2 Corinthians. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14 and then reading a few more uh, a little bit later on. It's on page 631 of your pew Bible. Would you stand with me together as we read God's word? 2 Chronicles 36, beginning at verse 11, reading in Jesus' name. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. Please sanctify us in that truth this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of every present heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Zedekiah. There's a name for you, isn't it? As we've been pondering baby names for our boy, Zedekiah has not risen to the top of that list for, for multiple reasons. Uh, his, reign, his reign as king, King Zedekiah, was not a positive one for Judah. Uh, the historical backdrop to this sermon text from, from 2 Chronicles 36 is the ending, the final act to the story of Judah and Israel as separate independent kingdoms. Uh, you should have in your bulletin received one of these bookmark-sized timelines of the decline and fall of Israel and Judah. And if you're watching online from your late cabin this Memorial Day weekend, you can find a link to this in the video description. It's, it's impossible to put every item on a bookmark of this size, but I think this does a, a decent overview of the major events that occurred, especially as they relate to what we're talking about today. Uh, after Solomon, after King Solomon, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, right? The southern kingdom of Judah remained loyal to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, while the northern kingdom of Israel rebelled and followed a man by the name of Jeroboam. And Israel, following this pattern of rebellion, had ungodly king after ungodly king after ungodly king who led Israel, the northern kingdom, in rebellion against the Lord and led Israel further away from the Lord. And then in 722 B.C., the, the kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians destroyed the Israelite capital in Samaria, captured and imprisoned the king at that time, and then exiled the Israelites to the farthest corners of the Assyrian Empire and brought Assyrians to live in the cities of Israel. Assyria almost destroyed Judah and Jerusalem as well, but the southern kingdom was miraculously, was, was graciously spared from destruction by the Lord. Over, over the years, Judah had some good, godly kings, uh, including one, uh, Josiah, who fits into our story here. Josiah ascended uh, to the throne in 640 B.C. at the ripe old age of eight. 
eight years old, he became king. Do we have any eight-year-olds here today? <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, but under, under his reign, spiritual revival began taking place, began happening. Uh, the priests actually found the book of the law, the Torah, in the temple, which had been lost and neglected. And the priests began to read it and have it read to the people. And spiritual revival began breaking out in the land of Judah. They committed to keeping the word of the Lord and his testimonies, his rules, his statutes that he gave. And they kept the Passover, something that hadn't been done in ages it would be like if, if one of the, the pastors of, of a church of a, of a liberal denomination had been doing some, some spring cleaning and stumbled across right that big old Bible that used to sit on their altar. And he, he all of a sudden begins to read it. And he's convicted of his sin. Show, he's, he's, uh, see how far short of God's standard he's fallen and how he's turned his back on the Lord. And, and he begins reading the word and preaching and teaching the word of God. And, and they, they begin doing that in their Sunday services again. Babies are baptized. Communion is being had once again. As a result, revival breaks out not only in that liberal church, but in the whole denomination as well, right? We would be rejoicing, welcoming them back in. And that's kind of what was going on in uh, Josiah's day. But Josiah, unfortunately, was killed in battle at Megiddo as he, as he foolishly tried to prevent Egyptians from, from joining in a battle at Carchemish and in, in 605 B.C. And I know I'm sorry for history, for those of you who don't like history, but this really sets the stage for what's happening in this text here. In 605, in, in a place called Carchemish, Babylon defeated the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptian Empire to become the dominant world power at the time. And they were dominant for the next 70 years or so. And following Josiah, following his death in battle, Judah had a series of kings in rapid succession, some of them serving for as long as three months before being deposed and the next king put on the throne. And by this time, Judah had already really lost its independence. They had become vassal kings, kingdoms, puppet kingdoms of, of other foreign tyrants. And by 597 B.C., Zedekiah, one of Josiah's sons, was installed as, as, by King Nebuchadnezzar as one of these puppet kings. And according to all accounts, his reign was anything but glorious. His reign, according to the writer of Chronicles, was characterized by his hard heart. Listen again to some of these verbs that describe Hezekiah's hard heart. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. He stiffened his neck and he hardened his heart against the Lord. Zedekiah's hard heart was characterized by a number of things. First, we're told that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is kind of the formulaic statement for, for the writers of, of Kings and Chronicles for, for a king or for a person who didn't follow the Lord. The statement was made of every king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and, and nearly every king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Such and such a king was so many years old when he became king. He reigned for so long and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then often we're told what kind of evil they did and how they did it. Things like building altars, building 
temple or altars to these idols and building them even in the temple of the Lord and then worshiping and serving those false gods. Evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, But it also includes following occultic practices, including sorcery, dealing with mediums and necromancers. Evil in the sight of the Lord. And there were even kings, Manasseh, Zedekiah in particular, who burned their sons as an offering uh, to Molech in the valley of Hinnom. Molech was a, a Canaanite deity, a Canaanite god of fertility. And his statue was, was hollow and it was made out of bronze. And he had his arms outstretched and they would start a fire inside Molech. And it would burn the, the statue, make the statue red hot. And then children, often infants who were still alive, were put into the arms of Molech where they died, burnt to death. And this was an offering to the god Molech. And this was evil, pure evil, in the sight of the Lord. And Zedekiah was actively engaged in these sins and others. Another one of Zedekiah's sins is that he did not humble himself before the Lord as the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived and reigned, reigned, lived and preached during the decline and fall of Judah. He began preaching when Josiah was a king, and his ministry as prophet lasted all throughout the fall of Judah and the start of their exile. And the book that he left, the book of Jeremiah, is actually the longest book that we have uh, if you count all of the words in the Hebrew. I personally didn't do that, but I trust those who have done that sort of thing, and they know it, right? But Jeremiah dedicates parts or holes of 21 of his chapters to Zedekiah and to the messages that the Lord had for Zedekiah. And Zedekiah persisted in his arrogance and in his pride, and he did not humble himself and repent and return to the Lord. We're also told in verse 13 that one of Zedekiah's sins was that he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. And now this one doesn't, doesn't sound too bad or too evil, right? A, a small little kingdom rebelling against the evil empire. This is the stuff movies and epic sagas are made of, right? But it was a sin for Zedekiah because the Lord, through Jeremiah, had told Zedekiah not to rebel, The Lord had told Zedekiah to submit to Nebuchadnezzar's rule because Nebi was the Lord's chosen instrument for justice. Submit to Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord had said, and you will live, but rebel, and there will be consequences. But of course, Zedekiah rebelled. And finally, we're told that Zedekiah stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. This is sort of a catch-all for Zedekiah's sins. Constantly turning from the Lord. Constantly despising and neglecting his word. Constantly rejecting the Lord's guidance and direction. But you know, Zedekiah wasn't alone in his sins. In verse 14, we're told all of the officers of the priests All of the people were likewise exceedingly unfaithful following all the abomination of the nations. All of the leaders, all of the people, everyone participated in these exceedingly unfaithful actions. 
Zedekiah may have led the parade, but everybody participated in the worship of other gods. Zedekiah commissioned the craftsmen, but everybody was on board with the, with the building of idols and the worshiping of idols in the temple of the Lord. Zedekiah willingly offered up his child on the altar of Molech, but he was far from the only one who did so. All of the leaders, all of the people, everyone unfaithful, everyone had turned their backs on the Lord. And so far, there's not been a lot of, of good news in this sermon, has there? Uh, it's it's going to get worse before it gets better, by the way. <laughs> in these next verses, verses 15 and 16, though, we do see the reign of the Lord. The first part dealt with Zedekiah's reign as king, and now we, we, we turn our attention to the reign of the Lord and to his kingship. And again, there's going to be some more bad news, but it does get good, I, I promise. Look at verses 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. The reign of the Lord is marked, we're told, by him persistently sending his messengers to his people. And again, these messengers included men like Jeremiah, who interacted with Zedekiah and were on a first-name basis with the king. And I mentioned it earlier, but 21, 21 of Jeremiah's 52 chapters, that's 40%, if you can do the math, they deal with the word of the Lord directly to Zedekiah. And there were others during the reign of Josiah and Zedekiah whom the Lord called to be prophets, men like Habakkuk and Zephaniah. We have their books in our Old Testament. But then there were some lesser-known men and women whom the Lord used to get his people's attention. Huldah was a prophetess who spoke to King Josiah, and Micaiah stood up to a king by the name of King Jehoshaphat. And there were others before them, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, among, among other prophets that the Lord persistently sent to his people. However, these messengers were continually rejected by the Lord, or by the kings and, and by the people. The Lord, though, sent these messengers persistently because, as it says in verse 14, he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. The Lord had a heart of compassion for his people, towards his wayward people. And how was the Lord's compassion demonstrated? One reason was through these persistent messengers. The Lord didn't just send one brief memo hoping the people got it. He didn't just tweet out one tweet of, 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 to the people in 100 or 280 characters, I think is what we're doing now with tweets or less. It wasn't one-off streaming special. The Lord's compassion was consistently demonstrated to his people through his prophets uh, but the Lord's compassion was also demonstrated through his patience. And I love this story. It's a, it's a story that's told of Robert Ingersoll, who was an 18th century atheist. And the story goes that after, after delivering one of his defiant speeches, he, he pulled a watch from his pocket and said, According to the Bible, God strikes men dead for blasphemy. So I will blaspheme God and give him five minutes to strike me dead and to damn my soul for all eternity. And then he proceeded to blaspheme God, and I won't repeat what he said. But the crowd was sitting there in silence, 
as the minutes ticked by, getting more nervous, getting more anxious with each passing moment. And after five minutes, he wasn't struck down dead. And so he snapped his watch shut and said, You see, there is no God. For if there was, he would have taken me at my word and struck me down dead. And that story was later told to uh, a British preacher by the name of Joseph Parker, uh, who said in in probably a very British accent that I'm not going to try to repeat up here right now, but he said, and did, did the American gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? <laughs> I love that. God has compassion. He is patient with his people. Ingersoll and others look at God and his patience and see that as inaction or indifference to the human plight. But in all reality, the Lord is compassionate, withholding judgment and wrath as long as possible. The Apostle Paul would later write that the Lord desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord is compassionate. And how was the Lord's compassion received? Not very well, not well at all. Listen, listen again to these, these verbs that are used in verse 16 to describe the, receptions, the people's reception of the message. They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing his prophets. The Lord's compassion was met with mocking, with scoffing, with despising. The people were, were, were in disbelief and were indifferent to the Lord's compassion. And as a result, it says, the Lord's righteous wrath rose against his people until there was no remedy. What does the Lord's wrath look like? His wrath often looks like punishment. Uh, evil ought to be punished, right? Yes, in eternity we know that, but often also in, in the here and the now, evil ought to be punished. And often that punishment comes through the justice system, right? As bad guys are put away through the vocation of law enforcement officers and judges and justice and juries, prison systems, the wrath of God brought upon evildoers. But then on a, on a national level too, when, it, when a nation needs judgment, that judgment often comes in the form of another nation conquering the offending nation. And this is where the, the term the sovereignty of God comes into play. What do, what do Christians mean when we say the sovereignty of God? We mean that, that God exercises supreme authority. He is reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords, exercising supreme authority. Look at, look at verse 17. It's not in our sermon text, but 2 Chronicles thirty six seventeen says this, Therefore he, that is the Lord, brought against them, that is his people, the king of the Chaldeans. And the word Chaldea is simply another word for Babylon. The Lord brought against his people the Babylonians. The Lord God, the Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the supreme authority was going to use the Babylonians to punish, to judge, to mete out his righteous wrath on his own people. And if you go on reading verses 17 through 21, you discover some of the judgments that God is bringing upon his people through the Chaldeans. Uh, murdering of young and old alike, plundering, stealing the possessions of God's people, completely destroying, sacking the cities, enslaving the population, 
The wrath of God, the author of Chronicles says, came via the Babylonian army and the invasion and the conquering of Judah. And now this, this doesn't mean that Babylon gets a free pass for their sins from the Lord. No, as the Lord told Habakkuk, the prophet, the Babylonians are guilty men whose strength is their God. Though they were tools, instruments in the hand of God, bringing about God's wrath, the Babylonians would still, would still be accountable for their sins. They would still have to pay for their sins. And they, they would do that as they were conquered by another nation, by the Medes and the Persians, who later on were conquered by Alexander the Great, who, who was replaced by Rome, and, and so on and so forth down the halls of history. God's wrath doled out by conquering nations. And we need to, to be careful that we don't take this too far and see every action as a, a judgment of God. Sometimes actions are the result of sin and sinful men who do them. I, I don't know if, right, for example, Putin's invasion of Ukraine is a judgment from God. I think God is probably trying to use that to get a hold of the Ukrainian people and people in general. But we need to be careful not to jump to conclusions too often. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but often God's wrath is doled out by conquering nations. Okay, so what do these verses in Israel and Judah's failures teach us today? What lessons are there in this messy and, and frankly, very depressing history? First and foremost, our trust is not to be, and it cannot be, in men nor in the government. Our trust must be in the Lord. Psalm 118 puts it this way, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Why? Because people will let you down. They will disappoint you. If you haven't figured that out yet, <laughs> just hang on about five minutes. You soon will figure that out. People will disappoint you. No matter how good and sweet and kind and caring they are, they are still fallen sinners who are in need of God's grace. Even people who have been redeemed and experienced the transforming, transforming love of God through Jesus and received his salvation, they will let you down because they too have that old sin nature that clings to them. People will let you down. And princes, the government, will also fail you. Why? Because they too are fallen sinners who are in need of God's grace. They are subject to bribery, to deceit, to pride, to looking out for their own interests, to, to ineptitude and foolish ideas. The Constitution of the United States of America is a good document. It stood the test of time, but it is not the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the Lord. The United States could be invaded from outside or, by, or be subverted from enemies within and crumble overnight. And if you derive your hope in your, and your trust, if your ultimate security comes from the government, the princes, the nations, then the foundation you are standing on will be destroyed if and when the United, United States is destroyed. Instead, turn your trust to the Lord. His word never fails. The grass withers, the flower falls. Nations come, nations go, but the word of our God endures forever. And the second lesson is this. We should hate, and dis we should hate what God hates and love what God loves. These verses from 2 Chronicles 36 
Uh, We've heard of the evil that the Lord hates, right? Pride and arrogant attitudes, hardening of hearts, indifference to the Lord, building and bowing down to idols, following occultic practices, demonic practices, sacrificing of children to Molech. And there are other sins as well uh, that we as Christians should abhor too. It's not a complete list. But over these over these past few weeks, we've had our fair share as a nation of ups and downs, some really bad news going on, right? On Saturday, May 14th, a white 18-year-old man entered into a Buffalo, New York supermarket with a rifle and with the intent to kill as many African Americans as possible, and he killed 10 people that day. The shooter was taken into custody and will, will hopefully be given the strictest of, of sentences. And then on, on Tuesday, May 24th, 10 days later, an 18-year-old man in Uvalde, Texas, right, shot his mother, grandmother in the face and then drove to an elementary school where he killed two teachers and 19, right, 19 fourth graders before being killed by the police. And regardless of your view on on guns or the Second Amendment, these acts are evil, done by evil people, and we should be quick to condemn them in the strongest of terms. These acts were pure evil. The Lord hates the taking of innocent life, and we should hate it as well, too. Lost lost, uh, in the news reportings of these two shootings was the report of the allegations um, into abuse and the sexual abuse and the cover-up of these sexual abuses going on within the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, The SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, is one of the larger denominations in the United States with over 47,000 congregations and over 14 million members. And a report was issued this week that investigated the handling and the cover-up of sexual abuse by the SBC's executive committee, which is their governing board. And this report brought to light over 700 cases in the last 20 years of abuses that were purposely covered up up in order to protect pastors and other high-ranking officers within the SBC. And again, this is pure evil, inexplicable evil. The Lord abhors this sort of abuse and its cover-up, and we should as well. And today, children are, are being offered up, are being sacrificed, not on the altar of Molech, but on the altars of convenience and choice. Abortion on demand, right up to the moment of birth, and some have even argued after the baby is born. It is a heinous evil. And in the news this last month, you've heard of the the leaked document, right, from the Supreme Court of the decision most likely coming down uh, regarding the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And and this has abortion advocates in an uproar, and it has pro-lifers rightly rejoicing in overturning of Roe v. Wade won't immediately outlaw abortions, but it brings it back to the state level. And here in Minnesota, we've got our work cut out for us, don't we? The Lord hates child sacrifice. And we should as well. On the positive side, we should love what the Lord loves. We should not just be against all of these things, but we should be for others. Righteousness and justice, kindness, mercy, grace, peace, forgiveness, love, life. And go on down the list, right? I think Paul summarizes it well in Romans 12 when he says, Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. A third, a third lesson for us is this, that evil should cause us to turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. 
evil should cause us to, to return to the Lord in repentance and faith. It's been asked a lot these last few weeks. If, if God were all powerful, why doesn't he stop these evil things from happening? And this question, which has been dubbed the problem of evil, is not a new question. Ever since, I think, sin was introduced, humanity has been asking this question. Why didn't the Lord stop this or that? Why didn't you stop the massacre at the Buffalo supermarket or in the Uvalde school? Why didn't you stop these sexual abusers from committing their evil? And honestly, when, when we're faced with these questions, words and, and explanations uh, can sound at best hollow and at worst aloof, right? Theological and philosophical explanations, police investigations and reports all can sound empty and meaningless. Again, we're talking about 19 fourth graders who are gunned down. God, if you are all powerful, why don't you stop this? Finding, the, finding an answer to the problem of evil in increased government regulations or in stricter gun laws may temporarily help, but those things cannot cure the sickness that's inside the human heart. There are good answers to these questions, and I think the Bible and Christianity, uh, rather than causing the questions, answers the questions really well. Uh, In Christianity, we know that the world right now, with all of its sickness, with all of its death, with all of its evil, we know that this is not the way that it is supposed to be, correct? We know that sin has corrupted every aspect of human life, so much so that the whole creation has been groaning, Paul writes, as in the pains of childbirth, waiting to be restored to the condition that the Lord had originally intended for it. And one day, hopefully very soon, the Lord Jesus will return and will finally defeat death and sin and the devil, and the Lord will recreate the heavens and earth completely free from the curse of sin. And so when we witness evil, it should cause us first and foremost to examine our own hearts, to return to the Lord in repentance and faith. We should examine our own hearts, see the evil that is there. And and yes, I, I do believe that the word evil is the right word for the sin that is in our own hearts. It might not make uh, you know, the headline news and, and your every sin won't be broadcast over the cable news networks, but your sin is no less evil in the sight of God. Each sin, even those that are seemingly quote-unquote smaller sins like little white lies or, or those that appear to be larger sins like racism and murder and abuse, each sin separates us from God, separates us from our Father in heaven. And so we need to repent Acknowledge our sins, stop doing them, and return to the Lord, for he is compassionate, he is gracious, and he will receive us. And then finally, there's, there's one more lesson I want to leave you with this morning. As we observe the, the inexplicable evil in the world and in our own hearts, and as we turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, Christians, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And if you've been paying attention, you've probably noticed that that Jesus has been absent from my sermon uh, so far this morning. And if you you notice that, good job. Uh, I did that kind of on 
purpose. As the Lord brought wrath upon his, his people, there wasn't a lot of hope. Yes, their exile would end and they would be returned to home, rebuild their cities, the temples, things like that. But for them, that was 70 years in the future. And as I, as I prepared this sermon this week, I, I felt that I needed to lay out all of this bad news first, <laughs> the lots and lots of bad news, and let it really sink in and soak in. But thankfully for us as Christians who, who live on this side of the cross, we have a, a wonderful perspective. We know that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and as he did, he, he not only bore your sins and paid for your sins, which is the most amazing news ever, but as, also as he hung on the cross, he was engaged in the greatest battle ever waged because it was through death that death was defeated. Through the death of Jesus on the cross and through resurrection from the dead, death was conquered. Through the death of Jesus, your sin was atoned for, was paid for. Through the death of Jesus, Satan, the great enemy of our souls, has been defeated. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday is proof positive that the victory over sin and death and the devil was won. And eventually and hopefully soon, Jesus is coming back. His return at his return, death and devil, the devil will be done away with forever, finally and ultimately defeated. And we long for that day. Our sins will be no more. We have eternal life in paradise with him, right? And Mar Maranatha, come Lord. So until that day, brothers and sisters in Christ, keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Consider him, the author of Hebrews would tell us. Look to him. In him, find your rest, find your joy, find your comfort, find your answers to these hard questions in Jesus and in his death and resurrection. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, there is a lot of evil in the world. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us as believers in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, to bring the gospel to a hurting people. Lord, and as our, our government and our leaders looks for solutions to problems, uh, Lord, we know that ultimately they'll never be able to find them because they're not looking in your word. They do not have the perspective that the Bible brings. And so we pray that you would empower us, embolden us, to one by one share the good news of Jesus with others. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to uh, draw close to you in your word and revive us in your word. Lord, um, help us each and every single day to draw near to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.